You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I've mentioned this before, but growing up here in Minnesota... In the 1950s and 60s, my dad developed a love for wrestling. In fact, in high school and college, he became a fairly accomplished wrestler. He loved the discipline and competitive nature of wrestling. He loved the fact that it involved his physical and mental faculties. He wanted to outwork and outsmart those he was up against. My dad's love for wrestling led to years of coaching teams of elementary, middle school, high school, and even college wrestlers. So I have many memories of wrestling practices and tournaments with my dad and my three brothers. As I got a little older, something I became aware of was the practice amongst the wrestling community of cutting weight right before a wrestling meet. In order to wrestle in a particular weight class, a wrestler had to make sure he was the exact weight or below by the time the official weigh-in for the match uh, arrived. For most guys, this wasn't a problem, but there were always those who would spend the 24 hours or or maybe longer, uh, but they would spend the 24 hours prior to the match taking all sorts of drastic measures to lose weight. Some would rigorously exercise inside a sauna with layers of clothing on. Others would exercise with these plastic suits on that would enhance their ability to sweat. One guy I knew would carry around an empty plastic water bottle and spit in it all day long. Another common practice was to fast. Guys would do all the things I've already mentioned, but on top of it, they would skip several meals before the official weigh-in. Now, friends, why? Why would wrestlers ever have been willing to engage in such drastic measures? In fact, many of these are outlawed now. Why would they be willing to sacrifice so much? What was it that compelled them to do things like skip several meals as part of a pre-tournament fast? Well, I have to believe that for most wrestlers, their behavior was motivated by some kind of love and devotion. On some level, they loved the sport of wrestling so much that they were willing to take drastic measures. They were willing to forego lesser pleasures like physical comfort and food for the sake of a greater love, wrestling in and winning a tournament. I want you to keep this in mind as we walk through our text this morning. Let me, let me, let me say it again. On some level, 
These young men loved the sport of wrestling so much that they were willing to take drastic measures and to forego lesser pleasures for the sake of a greater love. Last week, we looked at the second part of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 through 15. We were reminded of our total dependence on God. We need his provision, his pardon, and his protection. Our text this morning really continues the same theme, but we transition from the spiritual discipline of prayer to the spiritual discipline of fasting. And as we'll see, these two disciplines are intimately connected. Here's where we're headed this morning. First, we'll see the practice of fasting. Second, the pattern for fasting. And finally, the power behind fasting. First, the practice of fasting. I have in mind here an explanation of the practice as we find it in the text. Let's understand what was being practiced by those Jesus was confronting as he delivered this sermon. Again, if you've been with us throughout this study, you're going to quickly notice that verses 16 through 18 sound very familiar. So I want you to look at the text, and I want you to see this. They follow the pattern of verses 2 through 4, and then verses 5 through 8. Both texts that Aaron preached wonderfully for us a little over a month ago. In these two groups of verses, two illustrations are offered you remember them? The first dealing with giving to the needy and the second with prayer. In both cases, Jesus contrasts his desire for his followers with the hypocritical practices of the Pharisees. In doing good works and engaging in spiritual disciplines, the primary motive of the Pharisees was to gain the attention and garner the applause of men. The hearts of these religious leaders were gripped by sinful and selfish motivations. And notice verse 2. Their primary motive in giving to the needy was what? That they may be seen by others. Now look at verse 5. The primary motivation in publicly praying was exactly the same. That they may be seen by others. Now look with me at our text this morning. Verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting, what? May be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice that Jesus, just like he did with generosity and prayer, he assumes his people will fast. And when you give to the needy, and when you pray, and when you fast, not if you fast, in verse 16. When you fast, don't fast like the hypocrites. In other words, don't fast in order to impress people. Just like Jesus warned us about serving and praying for the attention and applause of others, fasting as well can be engaged in sinfully. 
Now, did you catch how the text describes the fasting of the hypocrites? Verse 16 again. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Can you picture this, friends? There's a gathering of spiritually minded people, and in walks, let's call them Harold. That's just a made up name. If you're visiting here this morning and your name is Harold, I apologize. But anyway, Harold walks in, and as soon as he is certain that everyone can see him, he contorts his face so that he will look miserable, so that someone will ask, Harold, what's wrong? Are you okay? In his mind, Harold would be delighted at this point, because his plan has worked. But of course, he would also be careful to maintain his gloomy countenance while he explains to everyone how committed he is to fasting, even though it makes him feel lightheaded and unstable, and it even makes his tummy growl. But in spite of this tremendous physical discomfort, Harold is committed to the important spiritual discipline of fasting. John Calvin describes those like our fictional friend Harold as, quote, playing to the gallery. Playing to the gallery. They turned a sacred occasion into a theatrical performance. Now, as he has done so many times already, Jesus is connecting the outward appearance of righteousness with the motivation of the heart. Jesus is concerned about more than right behavior. He is concerned with right motivations. The good news of the kingdom, when it is received by faith, transforms the heart and the behavior, but in that order. Instead of the hypocritical practice of the Pharisees, What is the right practice that Jesus commends? Look at verses 17 and 18 again. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Aaron explains so many elements of this passage already. But Jesus is basically saying this, when you decide to fast, be careful not to do anything, anything at all to draw attention to yourself. Fasting is about worship, not self-promotion. Fasting is about communion with God, not the applause of men. Fasting is about spiritual need, not religious performance. So brothers and sisters, let's take some time to pan out a little bit from this text in hopes of gaining a clear understanding of God's design for fasting. I won't say everything that could be said about this. For that, you'll have to attend Kramer's Sunday school class. He will cover everything. But what's the biblical pattern for fasting? This is our second main point. The pattern 
for fasting. Matthew 6, 16 through 18 is not, it is not the first time fasting is mentioned in the Bible. So I think it would be good for us to consider to some degree what the Bible says before and after this text to fill in the picture and to complete our understanding to some degree. So here's a very brief history of fasting in the Bible. Very brief history of fasting in the Bible. Fasting was required once a year in the nation of Israel. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the the entire nation was to cease labor and fast. We find that in Leviticus 16, verse 29. On that day, the high priest would offer a sacrifice to God asking forgiveness for the nation's sins. Fasting was part of this special day of worship. Now, even though it was only required once a year, fasting was also practiced in times of severe struggle or when facing important decisions. So let me, let me just give you a few examples. Maybe you can write these references down and look them up later. First, 2 Samuel 3, verse 35. 2 Samuel 3, verse 35, when David's child was sick, And it looked like the child would die. David fasted and prayed for God to spare his child from death. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. When a massive army was preparing to attack Judah, King Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast throughout the land. While fasting, they gathered together to pray for God's protection. Esther, chapter 4, verse 16. When Esther was preparing to go before the king and plead for the lives of the Jews, she asked the people to fast for three days. Ezra, chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. When the Jews were returning to the city of Jerusalem from captivity, Ezra had them fast and pray for safety. Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. When Jonah warned the people of Nineveh about God's anger over their sin, they fasted and prayed for God's forgiveness. Skipping ahead to the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. When the early church was meeting and praying, they fasted and God commanded them to send out Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. Then in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, when Paul was establishing churches and appointing elders in these new churches, he prayed and he fasted before committing them to the Lord. As you weave those examples together, you should be getting some idea of the meaning and the importance of this practice. What do these examples teach us about fasting? In every instance, fasting was connected to prayer. And in every instance, the people who fasted were facing either an important decision or a severe trial, like a sick child or an enemy attack or God's judgment. So please understand that fasting is more than just abstaining from food. Fasting is 
is not a biblical diet plan. It's far more. It's connected to our worship, to our praying, to our desperate need for God. In fact, listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones defines fasting. Lloyd-Jones writes, fasting means an abstinence from food for the sake of certain special purposes such as prayer or meditation or the seeking of God for some peculiar reason or under some exceptional circumstance. Fasting is not an end in itself. We don't fast in order to fast. We fast in order to pray, to pursue God, to go hard after him. We reject one need, our need for food, because of a greater need, our need for God. Brothers and sisters, do you see how our text this morning is just a continuation of what, we, what we've talked about over the last several weeks? We've been thinking deeply about the majesty and generosity and sufficiency of God, but also about our frailty and our profound neediness. We need God, and this, this brings that all into view in just another way. Let me offer you a third and final point. The power behind fasting. So this point is almost all application. I, I want us to grasp why fasting is important. We saw it in our text this morning. We took a brief overview of instances in Scripture. And now let me, let me sort of apply that to us. I want us to grasp why fasting is important. Now, when I use the word power, I could easily substitute the word effectual. So we could rephrase this final point, the effectual nature of fasting, the effectual nature of prayer. Like prayer, fasting is a spiritual discipline instituted by God, and it's a means of worship. It's a means of, commun of communing with and seeking after God. We know that God has ordained the end and he has ordained the means. Prayer and fasting is a means. We fast because hearing from God and knowing God's will and casting our burdens on God are more important than eating. John MacArthur summed it up well. He said, people who are consumed with concern before God don't take a lunch break. Fasting is saying, I need God more than I need bread. Fasting is saying, I need to pray more than I need to eat. Fasting is saying the need to fill my soul with God is greater than the need to fill my stomach with food. Friends, fasting helps us remember the need we so often forget. I think you can see God's design in this. 
So let me make a confession to you. I often have a hard time praying for God to provide my daily bread, like we talked about last week. I have a hard time doing that, and I think I know why. I don't pray for my daily bread because I'm rarely hungry. Of course, sometimes I feel hungry. I will tell Karen after the service I'm starving. But I've never experienced real hunger, bloated belly, dry mouth, severe pain, growing weakness. I'm always eating three times a day plus some snacks in between. You see, when food is plentiful, when I'm never hungry, I find it hard to pray for God to provide my daily bread. It's already there. Fasting, listen, fasting, feeling some hunger pains reminds me how needy I really am for God. When we think about this issue of fasting, we need to move the discussion beyond eating and drinking, though that's the most common example. Eating and drinking are just two of the many things we do to quiet the hunger inside of us. And here's what I mean. Have you ever heard the term self-medicating? What this term means is that we turn to something to make us feel better. Some people self-medicate through actual medication. Some through drugs. Some through food. Some through alcohol. Some through pornography. Some through sex. Some through gambling. Some through religious ritual. And the list goes on and on. Friends, when we feel hungry and needy, we all have physical things to which we turn in hopes that the cravings of our soul will be quieted. So fasting is the opposite of self-medication. Fasting forces us to forego the physical things we turn to for relief. Fasting refuses to allow us to quiet the cravings with activities and relationships and even food. See, fasting clears the way. Fasting clears the way for us to see God and to see him as the only one who can meet our deepest need. We all need God more than we need food. Here's why prayer and fasting go together. And perhaps this is why instruction on fasting follows the Lord's Prayer. We should pray. We should pray because we're needy. I hope that's been made clear. We should pray because we're needy, but we often forget our need. Fasting is then a God-appointed means to remind us that what we need most, we can't provide. Fasting pushes us back to God in prayer. 
fact, Andrew Murray wrote, prayer needs fasting for its full growth. Prayer is the one hand with which we grasp the invisible. Fasting is the other hand, the one with which we let go of the visible. Do you see how that works? Do you see God's design in this? We find it hard to grab the invisible because it's invisible but also because our hands are so full of the visible. Our hands are are so full of food and drink, schedules and activities that we forget our need to reach up and take our Father's hand, which he invites us to do. Fasting forces us to let go of the visible so we can reach up and grab hold of the invisible hand of our loving Father who knows what we need before we even ask. Jesus, after he fasted for 40 days, was tempted by the devil. The devil pointed at some rocks and said, why don't you turn those into bread? And what did Jesus say in response? Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. In other words, Jesus' greatest need, Jesus' greatest need was a right relationship with his father. Eating and drinking were nothing compared to that. So, fasting can mean abstinence from food, but it's not just about food. Do you see that? In 1 Corinthians 7, we're told that some married couples fasted from sex in order to pray. Fasting is appropriate for anything that would keep you from praying. So friend, maybe you need to fast from Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. Take that extra time to pursue God in prayer. Some of you may need to fast from the gym or a particular television program or working overtime or anything in your life that has pushed prayer to the fringes. Ask yourself, ask yourself, what can I not live without? What can I not live without? Fast from whatever that is. And take that freed up time you now have to engage in prayer. Remind yourself that your greatest need is not that thing or that activity, but rather communion with your Heavenly Father. Friends, life comes from Him, not from food or drink, 
What defines you is not how you feel, what you desire, or even what you do. What defines you is your relationship to God. So, Redeemer family, you've heard this now several times. The deep desire of your elders is that we would be a church devoted to prayer. We want to seek God's face and his direction in everything we do. We are desperate for God. So in response to Jesus' words here in Matthew 6, I think I'm safe in saying that if we're serious about prayer, then we need to be serious about fasting as well. Like the Israelites facing an enemy, or the people of Nineveh facing God's judgment, or the early church asking for God's direction, we need to fast as we prayerfully consider our own future. But again, remember, the point of fasting isn't fasting. The point of fasting is God. Charles Spurgeon said this about prayer and fasting to his congregation at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Quote, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never, listen to this, never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. Brothers and sisters, do you long, I do, do you long for high days at Redeemer Bible Church? Do you long to be part of a people that stand at the very threshold of heaven Do you long to see our congregation touched in an unmistakable way for the glory of God? Well, friends, God has given us a way to enter into his presence, to know him and to see his glory. It's through prayer and fasting. But I need to ask the question one more time. Are we too consumed with trivial and temporal matters? The answer for me far too often would be yes. One theologian offers us this challenge. He writes, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, It is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great things. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God. And it can be awakened. I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and to say with some simple fast, this much, O God, I want you. This much, O God, I want you. So Redeemer, let's let's do this together like a band of Wrestlers, let's forgo lesser pleasures 
for the sake of a greater love, a greater longing, the success of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.